This is episode one of a series of conversations I had with Bob Cooley. And who is Bob Cooley? Bob is responsible for bringing down the Chicago mob, or as the locals call it, the outfit. The outfit was the criminal enterprise that Al Capone crafted and put in motion in the 1920s. Over the decades, the outfit morphed into a blob that consumed all operations of government in Chicago up until the 1980s. Bob Cooley was a lawyer for the outfit, a fixer and an insider. He fixed the legendary Harry Alleman murder trial and was counsel for Pat Marcy, the mob-appointed politician who ran Chicago and Illinois from the First Ward. Bob knew almost all there was to know about the inner workings of the Chicago outfit an organization that had politicians, police, and judges as members. But one day, Bob did the unthinkable. He turned on the bad guys and divulged all their secrets to the FBI. Bob's enlightenment brought down powerful politicians and esteemed judges and forever decapitated Capone's legacy. I met Bob years ago after he wrote his book, When Corruption Was King. We discussed turning his book into a movie And recently, we decided to tell his life story through these recorded conversations. We start at his childhood, as I wanted to better understand the world that shaped him and his outlook on life. I think you'll find his story engaging and entertaining. And along the way, there are revelations about unsolved murders, accusations against judges, and sitting politicians. Chicago does the extremes like none other, and Bob Cooley is one story inside this maelstrom. One technical note, these recordings took place in the spring of 2022. Bob was located somewhere in the western United States. The conversations were recorded by me calling Bob. Sometimes you'll hear dogs barking in the background, phones ringing, call waiting beeping through. I did my best to try to clean these things up, but we did not have the perfect recording situation where we were both in one controlled environment. So I apologize for any annoying technical elements that bleed through the conversation. Thank you for listening. And here is episode one of the Cooley account. Bob, what year were you born and where were you born? I was born in Chicago. I was born on July 10, 1942. I was born in the hospital on the south side of Chicago. I was the third one in line. Uh, There were twins ahead of me in a family of nine kids, seven boys and two girls. My father, at the time when I was born, was a a Chicago policeman. My mother was was born and raised in uh, Pittsburgh. My grandparents, my on my mother's side were lived in Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh. In fact, I know for a fact she was. That her father was a policeman who was also killed in the line of duty. My father's father was killed in the line of duty in Chicago. He was killed by by a member of the Al Capone mob. What details do you know about your grandfather's murder? Well, I, I know I knew a lot about it. My father at one time uh, when I was. Uh, just before he died, that's when my father told me that the case had been fixed. My grandfather's uh, case had been fixed by the uh, by the mob there in Chicago. And I never realized that. I never realized that, you know, uh, at least that my father thought he was the case was fixed. I never knew about that until, you know, my father mentioned it to me pretty much on his deathbed. What had happened was he apparently 
tried to stop a robbery over there on uh, South uh, on South Michigan Avenue, uh, just south of the uh, just south of the Loop, and uh, he tried to stop a robbery, and the robber wound up you know reaching o- over the back of his head and shooting and killing my grandpa. Well, he didn't kill him on the spot. I guess he laid in the hospital for a long period of time before he died. Because uh, my grandmother would tell me, my grandmother told me about that, you know, when I, I got to be very close to my grandmother because I worked for a store called Berimus where I delivered the groceries and she happened to be a customer. And uh, I would deliver the groceries to her when I was, uh, when I was a kid. Did your grandfather's death... Was it one of these things that was in the background as a child that you knew about that was pushed to the side? No, I mean, it had nothing to do with my growing up or whatever, and I probably never knew anything about it until I got much older. Uh, When I became a policeman, I saw his star there. I would see his star there when i go to 11th and State, and his star was up there in the wall with the other policemen that were killed in the line of duty. You're... A child of Chicago, obviously, a child of the South Side. There were nine of us. There were nine kids, seven boys, and there were seven boys and two girls. Uh, as, as, as a kid, I was very angry. I was very angry as a kid because I felt my parents had no business having all these kids because we were basically the poorest people in the poor neighborhood. And uh, and I really was, a, I was really very angry growing up about that because you know all my friends had so much more than than we had well there were twins ahead of me the oldest one who became a priest and his twin was a, was a girl pat i was the third in line and the rest were all behind me you know we we had to move the first place was 74 28 and vernon south vernon that was saint columbanus and i remember that at that time there were about uh, I think there were only about four of us or whatever. Yeah, we were the poorest family even in that neighborhood. I was also the smallest kid in, in my class growing up, up all the way into, uh, into actually into high school. I was constantly getting beat up, uh, you know, because uh, the neighborhoods were changing. And when they had what they call blockbusters, it's, we had to move three different times as I was growing up. The first place, like I say, we lived 74th and Vernon. And uh, we lived there until I was uh, I was still in grammar school. I was up until about third grade, third grade or so. And then we then we moved to 70, uh, 74th, 74th or 76th in Langley. And I remember the doorbell ringing and my mother would answer it. And I hear somebody say, there's a black family going to move in down the street. You might want to sell your house now before the values go down. You know, just about every day the doorbell would ring. Then what would happen is the black family would move in and we'd have police cars out there, you know, in front of the house because people would be picketing or, or whatever, complaining about it. Three different times we had to move. My father said that it was time to go. It was time to go when somebody got killed in our block. That was when he felt he had to move the family. He was an honest policeman and obviously money was very, very tight. Were your parents good parents? Oh, I mean, oh, the best. Every, Both my mother and father, every day, every day, Mass and Communion, 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, they were very, very devout Catholics, both of them. And they're, they're, they gave up their whole world for their kids. Never took a vacation. I, I remember one vacation we had. 
when we were all shoved into a car and we went off to, it was upstate New York. And that was the only vacation I ever remember we had. What was it? A pain in the neck because uh, all of us shoved into a, into one motel room and the rest of it. And but uh, they gave up their whole lives for us. That's, that was their whole life. I mean, I realized this as I got older. I never had a legitimate set of clothes that I can remember until I went to I went to college and I got a I got a suit for the first time. All my clothes were hand me downs. My mother used to work over at the at the Catholic Church, and you know she would bring home food, you know, after the after the different uh, things there. And as I said, a lot of my fights when I was a very young kid. Well, because people would make fun of me because I was wearing their clothes, you know. Those are my clothes. No, they're not, and I'd get into a fight. But being the smallest uh, the smallest of all, you know, up, up until the time I decided I was going to put a stop to that, I was always getting beat up. So you're the smallest, the poorest, and then you have it rubbed in yeah. your face that you're wearing these recycled hand-me-downs. And, and or my mother was always, uh, was always over there at the... Uh, at the at the church, working there. In fact, you know, I found out as I got a little bit older too. They charged at the Catholic schools, but not for you know, not for us because my mother had to work it off for all the kids. Never had a car. The only car we had was my father uh, with a uh, with the squad car mm. uh, that he could take home. He was a detective, mm. and uh, he could take home the car. But we never had a car until the first car that we had. I remember was a was a pink Plymouth. You know, it was a long way to school, but even in the winter time, you know, I preferred walking to school and after school, uh, my mother would pick us up and I would hide because I didn't want to be seen getting into that, you know, that chunky looking pink Plymouth. I hated being poor. That was probably what, what really, uh, you know, motivated me down the road. When I was, I think about six, seven years old is, is when I started working the reason I started, I wanted to work to make money was so I could eat. I, I hated vegetables. I would never eat vegetables. And in our house, it was almost all vegetables. The only time we had, we had meat, I remember, would be, uh, would be round steak, they called it at the time. And it was like shoe leather. You know, my mother would, uh, my mother would, uh, would dip it in flour and, and fry it. But that was the only meat I remember we would we would have in the house, and I would not eat the vegetables. In fact, I would sit there at the table. I would sit there at the table for two, three hours afterwards because I would not eat. In fact, what I would do, I would throw the food behind the refrigerator. In the, the first place, the 74th and Vernon, I would throw it behind the refrigerator because I would sit there in, the, in, in my seat right by the refrigerator, and I would throw it back behind that. I'd have it in my mouth, and after a while, I'd have to go to the bathroom, and I'd spit it out, or I'd put it in my pockets, or throw it out the window. I would not eat vegetables. And Are these traditional family meals with your mother and father at the table and all your siblings? That was always the, the thing my father always insisted on was a family dinner. That was ultra important was the, the family dinner. Uh, every day at, you know, at 5 o'clock, at five o'clock would be the family dinner. And, uh, because he would have to work, he always worked two jobs or three jobs. And he would, uh, you know, he would have dinner and afterwards he would then go to work wherever he worked. I don't know when I was real young, I have no idea where he would go, but he would go and he would go out and work. He would never be home. I detested him because 
there was nothing for me to eat there. <laughs> I, I would not, I would not eat vegetables. I just, I mean, when I say vegetables, I'm talking about broccoli, asparagus, cauliflower, those things that, that have that odor. I just couldn't. Are you vocal about this? Are you telling your mother? Oh, well, yeah, well, sure. I mean, and you know, when she tried to make me, I would throw it up sometimes. Are your parents demanding that you eat these? And if not, you're getting my the mother. Belt? Oh, my mother. The yes. Or? Oh, they never hit me. No, never hit me for something like that. Uh, that was an interesting part of my childhood too. My father didn't believe in corporal punishment, which I thought was great. But uh, my mother was the one who tried to discipline us, and she would just say, "You will sit there until you eat it." And that's why I said. I would sometimes, dinner would be over by about maybe 5.45 or so before, because my dad had to leave, I remember. He would have to leave at 6 to go, you know, probably doing security work or who knows what. But I would be there sometimes until 9 o'clock, because I would not, until it was time to go to bed. <laughs> you, I would were not locked, you were locked to this table, and are your siblings mocking you, and, and the pile behind the refrigerator is growing? Well, they didn't know that until we moved. You know, they said nobody realized I was doing that until we moved. When we when we moved to our to seventy sixth and Langley, we took our refrigerator with us. You know, at that time when you moved, you took your you, we took our refrigerator with us. And when they pulled the refrigerator out, you know, the food you could see it was the food that had been accumulating there for years. It was almost like how can I describe it? like, you know, a piece of cardboard. It was almost, it looked like cardboard straight up because it had been building over a long period of time. There's no secrets, are there? Did your mother find this humorous? Or was she doubling down on the vegetable intake? No, but, you know, she would put the food out there for everybody and I would ignore mine. And But what I would do too, as I said, I would sometimes, you know, when she wasn't looking, she'd have to go and wash the dishes. We never had dishwashers and, she would be going to wash the dishes or doing things. And that's when I, we had a dog, Jose, too, a little chihuahua who would eat whatever I would hand him. And I'd try to feed, you know, I'd try to put the food down there. But I, I remember one time, it was a real bizarre experience. I, I come home from school and I come in, we had, you know, as I say, it was a real old, real old, old house. And I come walking in through the back door and my mother grabs me by the ear and takes me downstairs. The washing machine was downstairs and puts my head, actually had almost picked me up because I was smaller than the machine. And, and, and I look in there and I see a bunch of peas, <laughs> a bunch of peas in the washing machine. And I said, how, how do you know that was me? <laughs> They're funny experiences now, but I mean, no, my mother, you know, my, nobody ever hit me. My mother, my father did not believe in corporal punishment. In fact, what was interesting about growing up, my father would uh, would not discipline us. And uh, my mother, when we, when we do something, my mother would try. In fact, she would have us bend over the bed, first with a strap, and as we got a little bit older, you know, with an ironing cord, with an ironing cord, and, you know, hit us a few times. And it got to the point where, as I got to be even like, 10, 11, 12, you know, I would put my hand up and try and stop her or whatever. And she'd say, your, your father will, your father will punish me when you get home. And when my father would get home, he wouldn't come home until nine o'clock, nine 30. I'd be in bed and pretend that I'm sleeping. 
And, and I told the story. I don't know if I told it in the book. And what happened on one occasion, I was always getting into trouble. Okay? One of the things, I was always getting into fights. And I was always throwing stones. And on one occasion, uh, this was in their second house. This was over at 76th and Langley. In all our neighborhoods, none of the alleys were paved. It was always dirt. These are all dirt alleys. Across the alley from us, a black family had moved in. And I was in the alley and I was throwing stones. And I don't know what I was throwing at, but I, I broke a window uh, at, the, at the house. And, and I ran away. And, you know, nothing happened for a while. So I went back, I went back out. And when I came, came back, the black guy was standing there, you know, on our porch and, you know, towards the, the back going with a little stairway going up to the door. When you say, but when you say to, black guy, you mean the neighbor, the, the, the gentleman that owned that residence or whoever lived yeah, in right. that Yeah, the right. The one whose house, the one whose house I had broken the window. I had told my mother. Uh, when I came home, I told my mother, my brother Bill broke the window. Bill Bill was two years younger than me. And I told my mother that, you know, my brother, I said, Bill, you know, mother, Bill broke that window. Bill broke the window across the alley. And uh, and then I, then I went out, and I was out in the alley playing. And that's when the guy came over, and he said to my mother, you know, your, your, your one son broke the window. And she said, yes, I know. He's back in the house, and I'm punishing him. And that's when he told her, no, it's the one down. I just saw him down the alley. I just saw him down the alley. Time when I came back home this time, you know, my mother was really angry. And she, you know, wanted to, told me to bend over. And I just said, no, I was getting stubborn like that. I'm not going to let you beat me with that, you know, with that ironing cord. And so she said, well, when your father comes home, when your father comes home, you'll get punished. This happened, it was, I remember it was a Sunday when this happened. And the reason I remember it is because uh, I was in the, I was in the living room when my father did come home. And I figured, well, this time I probably, he, my father had never hit me. He'd never. He didn't believe in corporal punishment. He believed, you know, God will punish you and whatever, which I thought was great. He says, uh, you know, my mother says, Jim, she said, and she told him what I did. Now you've got to punish him. You've got to start punishing him. I'm about maybe... 12, 11, 12 years old, probably somewhere around that at this time. And he said, I'll punish him. You know, I'll get him later. You know, I'll punish him later. I want to get something to eat because I have to go back. I have to go back out to work. And she said, you know, and she really got angry at him. Now, that's, you punish him. So my parents' room was, you know, you walk in the front, you, you walk in from the front room and you turn to the right. And that's where my parents' room was. A door leading in from the living room. And there was a door on the other side going, which would be right alongside where the bathroom was. We only had one bathroom, only one bathroom in the house for 11 people. He closes the door. He tells me to get over the, he tells me to bend over the bed. The other door is, is, is also closed. And he had, he had his uh, police belts. He had in his closet there. And he has me bend over the bed and he starts hitting the bed. He doesn't hit me. He hits the bed, and you can hear whack, whack. I better make some noise. So when he does that, I start ah ah, and I was so loud. My mother thought he was beating him. He was killing me, and she opens the door. She sees him hitting the bed, and with that, she goes ballistic. And he now does start to hit me with the belt, and hit me so hard 
you know, I'm I I climbed under the bed to stop it, and he's and then and he he picked up the bed with he was a big guy. He picked up the bed with one hand and was still trying to get me, and and I am crying now because it does hurt. And I go into my room, and about twenty like about twenty minutes later, my dad comes in there, and he's crying and apologizing for you know for what he did. I mean, it was a, a real bizarre situation. Tell me a little bit about your father as a detective. What kind of cases did he cover, and how that shaped you? moving forward towards your decision to become a police officer, but more about your father's psychology as a detective. And what I mean is having worked with detectives creatively, they have a mindset and an approach because of their work that can often shape them as human beings and how they interact with people in a good way in most cases. Did your father... Was he shaped by his job, and how did that affect you? I, I know exactly where you're coming from, and I never thought about being a policeman because they didn't get paid any money. I hated being poor as a kid. I just wanted to, you know, as soon as I could, you know, get finished up and start going to work and making some money. But policemen didn't make any money. They were, you know, unbelievably low-salaried. I do remember my father was a detective. From the time that I, you know, I was a kid, he was no longer in uniform. He was a detective. And the reason I remember that is because my father was an honest policeman and as a policeman and a detective who would not take any money. Uh, at Christmas time, as when I became a policeman, I realized this, people give you gifts. They just do. Businesses, you know, you know, liquor stores have give you some liquor other places at Christmas time. And the policemen all go and stop in these different places and they give them gifts. My father would not accept even those Christmas gifts. He was an honest, he just didn't believe in it. There was another policeman who would be at the house all the time. His name was Tiny, I call him, they called him Tiny Almond. He was a big, big, fat policeman. I don't know what his first name was, but they called him Tiny Almond. The reason I remember him is he would be sitting, he'd be in there all the time. And I remember him making fun of my father because he was so honest. When I remember as I'm walking by, he's saying, why, you know, listen to you. You have to work all these other jobs. What's the matter with you? It's all legitimate, you know, uh, and, you know, to get rewards and, and take and take money and whatever. And, uh, you know, and my father just, you know, said that he's making fun of him because he won't take, you know, any, any money. And he uh, and he's working these other jobs when Chinese, you know, is doing very well driving a nice car and the rest of it was obviously a crooked cop. Does your father talk about how corrupt the police department is or other crooked cops? No, never. You you had to understand my father. He was, he was the way he was. The, the other policemen all loved working with my dad. And I find out all this when I became a policeman and I started talking with these different people, they, they all loved working with my dad. Because when they would stop to go get gifts, they'd say in something for the other policemen and they would keep all of it. They, well, they would get extra that way. They, yeah. you know, they loved working with them because my father didn't want any, but would never say anything about, about, about what they're doing or whatever. And that was why he never got promoted. I'm sure he never got promoted. He was a brilliant, my father was a brilliant man. 
that, you know, when I became, you know, when I became a policeman, again, a lot of these people fell in love with me, these other policemen and all, uh, you know, because of, you know, what I, the way I was as a policeman and all the awards that I got and others would start talking to me and, and they loved my dad. They loved him because of the way he was that, you know, and they really respected him in every sense of the word. But I remember as a kid, there was a magazine, True Magazine, uh, that would constantly do stories about my dad and about arrests that he made with the cartage detail. There was a, there was a cartage detail, uh, because of all these, all these mob guys that were, you know, hijacking all these trucks. Cartage detail. What is that? And that no, cartage. That's, you know, when you're, you know, these trucks that are transporting, you know, suits and clothes and everything else and valuable stuff. It was a special unit in the police department. There were so many robberies going on and hijackings. I'm sorry, hijackings, not robberies, but they were hijacking trucks there in Chicago. You know, I mean, trucks with $100,000 loads of clothes and and suits and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and electronics and whatever. They were hijacking the trucks, then, you know, then taking, stealing all the merchandise. They started a detail of special unit of about, I think, about six policemen or detectives. And my father was one of them. Uh, they would strictly work on those, on getting, you know, on, on making arrests and recovering, recovering the property from these hijackings. You know, event, it, it was the mob. It was the mob that was doing it, obviously. They made so many arrests and they put a stop to all of them that they cut out the detail. And, and the reason, I know the reason why they did. Same as when, when the detectives were making, when, when they were making all kinds of arrests, arrests there for gambling. That's when Hanhart was made the chief of detectives. And the thing that he did was he put a stop to allowing the detectives to make any arrests in the Chicagoland area. I mean, I know why. Eventually, they disbanded the unit. After about three years, they disbanded it, saying there's no more need for it. And then the then the and then the hijackings all picked up again. And that's when my dad got transferred over into recruit processing. I wanna go back to something you said about your father, which is that he was a genius. He was so naive in terms of the ways of the world. To be a priest, you want you go first. You go through college. And then you go through all kinds of other stuff. He was, I told you, he was a Carmelite, which which really helped me down the road and kept me from being kicked out of school at, at Mount Carmel. But uh, he was a Carmelite where he was in the seminary and you finish up with your four years of, of college and then you go into other training. But I find out again all this later. I didn't know it as, as I was growing up. My father was the one that was involved handling all the all the finances for the Carmelite order and our whole family wound up uh, every single one of us wound up going through college and scholarships of one sort or another so my my father was just a uh, was a brilliant man in terms of you know in terms of uh, but not in terms of the ways of the world it was unbelievably naive as a policeman you're supposed to you know you you, you go for you go for this in-service training you're supposed to go once a year uh, you know for shooting when I was a policeman and uh, I was there at the training academy, at the academy, I'm talking with one of the instructors. Oh, Bob, you know, cool. Any relation to James, to, to James? 
That's my dad. Oh, okay. And he's telling me, <laughs> he eventually tells me a funny story about my dad. My dad, you're supposed to go every year, you know, with, uh, you know, and then you bring your gun or whatever and you do your shooting. And uh, my dad apparently hadn't gone for years and years. And finally, when he was told he had to go and he took out his gun, the gun wouldn't fire. The gun, the gun was so old and rusty or whatever. This guy told me the gun, the gun would not fire. The reason he took the job was because at that time he had, he had, uh, you know, he had the, he had the twins. And when he had the twins, he had to get a steady job where he had a steady paycheck. That was why he went in the police department. Prior to that, what he was doing when he left the seminary, like I say, he was, he was off. He had, he had already taken some vows. In other words, in the seminary, you go in there and you take some vows that, you know, you'll never get married and you'll never, uh, you'll never do this and you'll never do that. Those are the final vows. Before that, you take certain other vows. Uh, what they are, I didn't know. Just before he, he took his final vows, apparently he was in Pennsylvania and that's when he met my mother. Uh, that's when he met my he met my mother. I saw her face. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman when she was uh, you know, when she was younger, and he fell in love. And that's when he, at the last minute, got out of the seminary. Bill was a very, very devout Catholic, and initially, the job he was working was as a collector, not not like Marco and not or, or Rick or whatever. He would collect uh, for people that owed you know owed money on credit cards or for you know buying. A, buying a furnace or whatever, where he would go and knock on doors or he would, cause he would, he would tell me, he eventually told me some stories about that, how he would, what he would do is he would call people. He had a phone book that would, with every address would have phone numbers. It was a reverse phone book or something, you know, but whoever the people were living in that, that, that address. And what he would do to collect some money is he would call somebody at about four in the morning he would call the next door neighbor and say, "It's really, really very important. Can you, can you get, can you get so and so?" And uh, you know, the person would go and knock in the, thinking it's an emergency, knocking the guy's door. And when the guy would come over, you know, to answer the phone, he'd say, "Pay your money. You owe the money. Pay your money. <laughs> pay your money." He would tell me different ways that he went about collecting it, but the problem with that was it wasn't guaranteed money. It was strictly a commission. That was why he wound up going in the police department because it would be a steady paycheck at city of Chicago. It wasn't much, but it would be guaranteed money. And when he, and from the time he joined the police department, he always had two or three other jobs. So that's why he went in the police department. Interesting. And are you raised in an environment where the city of Chicago and the politics of Chicago are a topic of conversation in positive or negative ways. I was raised in a household where politics were never really discussed. My years of being in the house with my family were the 70s and the 80s, but my parents didn't talk about politics. My parents didn't talk about what was going on in Chicago. Granted, I grew up in the shadow of the city, but it wasn't a conversation in my in my household about, oh, the, sh- the city's so corrupt and daily this or the mob's doing that. Now, I remember things through the paper or the radio. For you, is this stuff in your, are these conversations 
in your sphere? No, they never discussed. There was never anything uh, at dinner. At dinner, we just, you know, what did you do today? And, you know, how was your day and whatever. Beyond the dinner conversation and just you yourself, are you, Bob Cooley, shaping an idea about what your universe is and what Chicago is in the sense that, like, this is a great city. I love being here. Chicago's awesome. Or is it this is a corrupt hellhole and and it's a machine city and I need to get out of here for for greener pastures or better environments? Oh, no, I I never had any thoughts about any of it, you know, politically or anything else. No, from the time I was about uh, as young as I can remember, seven, eight years old, even younger than that, I was always working, trying to make money. You know, we're talking pennies. Tell me about that. At seven, eight years old, you're you're working? Oh, yeah. At the, at the age of about seven or eight, what my mother had us doing was collecting papers. I remember it was a, we got a penny a pound. We would go out every morning. I'd have my, my red wagon. We'd go out every morning and up and down the alleys, up and down, and pick up. Everybody threw their papers out in the back. It wasn't like now. You know, you just threw the papers out in the back, you know, in the back, and somebody would come by. You know, they had, they had people with big trucks that would come by and would, you know, would pick those up. It was part, you know, it was a big business for them, even though it was only like a penny a pound for us. But uh, we would go out and collect papers all around the neighborhoods. I would stand out in front of the grocery store when I was about seven, eight years old, even younger. And, you know, can I help you carry your groceries? You know, to these women, you know, to these women, the older women that would be coming in and out. And, and I'd do it for a penny or two. And sometimes they would say, no, thanks, but they would give you something. As I got a little bit older, I was probably about 11 or 12. And my mother got a paper route. The ones that would be out there with her uh, doing the paper route would be my brother, my older brother, Steve, and myself. By the time I was in grammar school, I was in seventh grade. I, I wound up with four jobs. Uh, I, would, I had a paper route at that time. I had my own paper route, which I did. I'd get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 in the morning and do my paper route. I got a job at Barima's Grocery Store up on 79th Street. I would go over there right after school. I had, I'd get a dollar a day, and I'd work there from, I think it was around 3.30 or 4 o'clock until about 6.00. And my my pay would be a dollar would be a dollar a day, and I would deliver the groceries from him, and I would get some tips from the people that way after I delivered the groceries. And what I loved about the job was he would make me something before, and and, and I I right down the street at the other corner there was a drugstore uh, that was uh, Specter was the was the name of a drugstore. The guy was an older guy named Specter, and I convinced him that I could go to work from six o'clock until he closed at nine. And again, he'd give me a dollar. I would get paid one dollar, but I could deliver the, I could deliver the drugs to people and I would get tips from doing that. A lot of times you get like a nickel or dime, but I mean, that was big money. That was big money at that time. You're working three to six, you, you go down the block and then you're working six to nine for the drugstore. See, I was always able to maneuver and manipulate. With Spectre, what he had me, what he had me do along with the deliveries, he was a small drugstore. There was a bigger drugstore. In fact, it was on 79th Street. It was about a mile away, and it was right down the street from where I lived. Uh, he would have me go over there 
to get some of the drugs that he didn't have. In other words, somebody would want a prescription and he'd need some of the drugs. There was a much bigger drugstore down down the street, you know, about a mile or so away. So, you know, I, I had my bike and I would drive over there. When I was there, I would see that they had some deliveries to go out. And he had somebody that was, you know, working there delivering for him. And I talked to him, you know, I talked to him and I said, look, I can, I can make a couple of these while I'm waiting for you to, while I'm waiting for you to, you know, to, you know, get my prescription stuff ready. And now I started working there too, just when I would come back and forth, but also I would work there during, you know, before, you know, sometimes, you know, at other times I would start working for him. So I wound up having about four or five jobs at the same time here. Here's, but here's where I would make, you know, I would make some money. My mother wanted us to turn in all the money that, you know, she opened an account for all of us. You know, and when I say all of us, that goes after me. I was supposed to give her all the money that I made, and she would give me a little something, you know, a little something, you know, to basically live on. But what I would do is, you know, she'd have no idea, you know, you know what, what I'm making with tips. And even like when I caddied the rest, you know, when I, when I started caddying then after that, you know, I, I would not tell her how much I made. I would have my own little stash. Is she trusting you that you're handing over all the money? Or is well, it, I mean, she just assumed she yeah. just assumed that I was. And is that money that, going into the family pot? I thought it was going into, you know, and that's why I'm thinking, I'm a little kid. Why the hell should I be paying the bills for all these other people? I thought she was doing that. I, you know, she told us that she was opening up, you know, a savings account, you know, for us. And, and I must, you know, and I figured that she's just, you know, cause I know how poor we are. I remember one of the other things that got me really angry and embarrassed. We didn't have a car. The same store where I used to go and stand out in front and say, can I carry your groceries? That was a place where she would go shopping. And when she would go, I'd have to walk with her and we'd take my little red wagon and we'd go in there. And as she's walking through, she would look for cans that are, that are dented or whatever. Now they didn't have registers like they do now, you know, where you just swish things across. Every single item is like, you know, put in, put in by hand. She would say to him, can I get a penny off this or a couple pennies off that because it's, you know, dented and whatever. And I would be so embarrassed. Here I am only six, seven years old. But I'm humiliated by the fact that we have to do that. I understood later. I mean, I love my parents later. And I, I still love them at that time. When I went to college to uh, Marquette, I had a wrestling scholarship, which I'm sure my father had a lot to do with that. When I went to Marquette, I was able to buy the first suit of my life. I never had a suit before. My mother gave me my bank account. I had accumulated something like about $1,500, which was huge money. All those nickels and dimes and, you know, and dollars that I was turning over. She had been saving every, every, every single penny of that was put into my account. She had actually taken all that money, much as they needed the money, whatever. She had taken all that money and put it in my account. So that concludes episode one. Stay connected for episode two as we discuss Bob being thrown out of Marquette University and the years prior to him becoming a police officer.